Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of studying your word. We thank you for the gift of prophecy. We thank you that we have a sure foundation on the prophetic word. And the, not only the prophetic word, but the incarnate word of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that this afternoon, even as we look at more minute details that undergird this message, may we see your hand of providence at work. May we see these prophecies pointing toward Jesus, and may he be lifted up as a result of our being here today. Guide what we study and come and be our teacher, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Those of you who have anything to say or to know about Seventh-day Adventists, you know that we were a church that was founded upon this great text over in Daniel 8. The Millerite Adventists preached this with all their hearts. Unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. This morning, I tried to, in a few minutes, share what that meant when it said the sanctuary would be cleansed, nitzdak, that it has a practical statement that refers to setting right of the gospel which had been eclipsed by the, by the uh, false power of the Middle Ages and a work of judgment that was beginning in heaven in which God was cleansing the records of the heavenly sanctuary and we're inviting the Spirit to cleanse our hearts. And the, the work of vindication, this whole great controversy has been over the character of God. Can we trust him? And God is saying to us, yes, I am a trustworthy God. And he's saying to the universe, look at the ways that I deal with my children. One of the issues that were raised back with Desmond Ford back when he raised his attacks was he attacked the investigative judgment, the idea of an investigative judgment. There is no such thing as an investigative judgment of God's people, he said. It's just a face-saving device invented by the Millerites back in 1844, and that text has nothing to do with the investigative judgment. It has to do with Antiochus Epiphanes and that whole history. And uh, the Adventist pioneers were so ignorant, even if it did have to do with the judgment, they couldn't even get the right date for when it started. They, they settled on 457 as the seventh year of Artaxerxes, and the, all the scholars know it was 458 rather than 457. And so they're off. They were off by a year. And then come to 1844, even if it were the year 1844, what did those foolish Adventist pioneers do? They went to a little group of, a little sect of Jews called the Karaites. What did they know? All they would have had to do was to open up the Jewish almanac for 1844. Anyone could see the Day of Atonement that year was September 23, not October 22. What simple-minded pioneers. That was his argument, among the many others. And so I became excited when I learned that there was very solid evidence for the foundation pillars of this 2300-day prophecy, when it began and when it ended. Now, I'm not telling the story today of the year, 458 versus 457. If you want to learn that story, you're actually sitting in an auditorium that has as its namesake, the one this was founded, uh, named after, Lynn Wood was an archaeologist who worked with Siegfried Horn and wrote this book called The Chronology of Ezra 7, in which he went back 
And the story's a fascinating one to tell. Michael can probably tell it better than I because he knows all the archaeology behind it. But on a little island down in the southern part of Egypt, the little Elephantine Island, they found some papyrus manuscripts, thousands of them, written by Jews that had been stationed there, but they were living in Egypt, so they started writing double dating, dating in the Jewish way of the dating and dating in Egyptian dates, and they have to be living in the very time of Artaxerxes. And so they double dated these manuscripts, and by Linwood, as he and Siegfried Horn explained it very well, by checking out these dual datings of every manuscript, they were able to determine which was the true seventh year of Artaxerxes when this decree went out. And guess what? 457's the right date, not 458. God preserved some dusty papyrus manuscripts, which were then, even after they were found, they were hidden in a, in a vault someplace, and then they were stuck in, a, in, a, in an old trunk someplace until finally, Someone translated them and saw that they had the key that unlocked the beginning date, gave us confirmation. You can find it already in scripture, but this was icing on the cake to show the date is 457. Well, I was just curious as I was wrestling with this passage on 457, do you think we can even be more accurate about when the date started? Let's go for a minute to when it ended. When did the 2300 days end? Day of Atonement, right? The 2300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed, and that language of cleansing is Day of Atonement language. In fact, the whole, the whole eighth chapter of Daniel gives us hints that it's pointing toward Day of Atonement. Even the, even the goat and the ram that are the two animals that are used there for the animals of the Daniel 8, those are Day of Atonement animals. The only time when all of the, those two are sacrificed by themselves together is Day of Atonement. And so Daniel 8 points toward Day of Atonement. Day of Atonement, 1844. But the debate is, when was Day of Atonement that year? Now, uh, Dr. Domstieck is going to take us through the history of the Karaites and how Adventists made the connection with the Karaites. And I'm, so I'm going to try to, what I say, not overlap what you say, but we're probably going to have some overlap, and you'll just correct me the things that I'm wrong, and the church historian will take precedence. Just listen to him rather than to me. I'm just an Old, old Testament theologian, so let the, let the church history guy come in uh, and say the truth. But I will do my best. Okay. So I'm going to spend a lot of time on 457, which was before the Karaites ever came around. So let's go to, um, you all have a handout. Did everyone get a handout? Anybody not have a handout? Raise your hand. Okay, there's one or more up here. You could just bring one. This is important, even though uh, I'm not using PowerPoint. Uh, First of all, I grew up in a different generation than PowerPoint. I grew up in the generation where they told us this was the power that is, this is PowerPoint. <laughs> Pointing to the word, that's where the power is. Every time I try to use PowerPoint, something goes wrong with the electronics, but when I use the word, nothing ever goes wrong. <laughs> so uh, so I'm, I'm here with the word, but I also wanted to have you to have something to take home with you and to have an outline to follow. You'll see the main points here in this outline as we look through asking the question, if 1844 ended the 2300 days and that came on a day of atonement, and if God is a God of precision and accuracy, when would he have started the 2300 days? Could it be possible that he actually started the 2300 days on a day of atonement? Wouldn't that be cool if it worked? But where's the evidence? Well, I actually found a couple of people who were pioneers who asserted that, that 1844 was the end point 
of a 2300 days that started in 457, but more particularly on Day of Atonement, 457. One of them was none other than J.N. Andrews. I have the honor of being called the J.N. Andrews Professor of Old Testament at the seminary. And uh, I don't take that lightly. That's why I have my beard. Uh, I've been trying to find round glasses so that I will look like J.N. Andrews and be able to uh, uh, hold up the tradition. But I know I'll never make it because he had a memory that he could memorize the whole New Testament in his brain. And I don't have that kind of a memory. So I'm no J.N. Andrews, that's for sure. But I was delighted to see in a in his book on the 2300 days, and let's see if we get the reference here, where he actually says that it probably took place on the Day of Atonement, but he didn't give any evidence. And then there is an, another uh, person by the name of S.S. Snow. Will you be talking about him? S.S. Snow? Okay. S.S. Snow also, in, in one of his references, he spoke about the Day of Atonement, or uh, about the uh, 457 actually starting on the Day of Atonement. And you know what, he's, this, is, this is the terrible thing about doing research, is that he wrote it in one of his articles, and he said, now, in the previous article, I've given the evidence for this, and we have no record of that previous article. It's been lost from history. I've gone everywhere. I've gone to, to um, the White Estate in Washington and here in Epin, and we don't have that article. But I found a later book that he wrote in which he actually gives a synopsis of it, of the reasons. And all he says is it has something to do with the sacrifices that were unique, that were off, supposed to be offered. That's all he says. But that's enough for a detective. If you get the, the, the smell and you can head in the right direction. So let's be, in a, let's be detectives here for a few minutes. And let's try to sniff the trail of S.S. Snow, see if he was on the right track. I can't prove whether he was on the right track, but I think there's evidence there. There's hints that I never dreamed would be significant that end up helping us to decide the exact time for the beginning of the 2300 days. So first of all, we have to ask, if you're on with me with the handout, did the 2300 days start? Did the decree of Artaxerxes in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, did that go forth in the spring or in the fall? Well, when did he give the decree? According to Ezra 7, he gave it early in the year. In the spring of the year, he gave the decree. But Daniel 9 says, from the going forth, going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So when did the command go forth from Daniel 9? Was it when he issued the decree or when it actually went into effect. Now, we've got Adventist scholars who argue on both sides of this. Adventist scholars who say, well, it actually went forth in the spring, because that's when he wrote the decree. We've got other Adventist scholars that say, no, it was when it went into effect, which was in the late summer or the fall. Is there any way we can know? Well, fortunately, uh, there's this particular Hebrew word that is used in Daniel 9 from the going forth. Motzah is the word. And if you look up the word motzah everywhere else in the Old Testament, it implies regularly, consistently, it implies not when something is issued, but when it goes into effect. And so, as far as I checked last, Ellen White did not know Hebrew, right? But she had something better than Hebrew. 
She had the Holy Spirit inspiring her. And so she writes, the decree went into effect in the fall of 457. She didn't know that based upon the Mozart. She knew it based upon the Holy Spirit. But one of my fun things to do, I hope, I don't know if you enjoy this as much as I do. I believe in the writings of Ellen White. And when someone comes up to me and tries to throw cold water on Ellen White, how they did with your dad that time, remember that article that he wrote? They dumped on some of the historical dates that Ellen White spoke about in Great Controversy. Michael's dad, Gerhardt, took him on. And he went into the ancient sources in Germany and found that the bell that rang was indeed the bell that she said it was, not what all the scholars had said. And he systematically dismantled their accusations against Ellen White. And so when people say, well, Ellen White didn't get it right as to when the decree went into effect, that just spurs me on to go and look at the Hebrew and to say, come on, guys, here's the evidence. It's in the Bible. And we have, happen to have the good fortune that Ellen White gives us insights, which then she says, don't take my word for it. Don't preach it just based on me. Go and find it in the Bible. And then preach it from the Bible. How many hundreds of detours have we been saved from falling off of ditches because God gave us insight from an inspired author? not as a lazy shortcut not to study scripture, but as a safe card to know where to go for scripture. And so she, she, she nails it at the fall, but she doesn't go into any more specifics. So there's where we got to see, can we go into more detail? So are you with me? We're on the, we've gone through the first point, spring or fall. Ellen White says the commandment went into effect in the autumn. And... I argue that the Mozart of Hebrew demonstrates that. So when in the autumn? Here's, let's, let's look some clues. So we've got to open our Bibles to the decree that was made when they went back. Ezra 7. Well, maybe, we, yeah, maybe, we should, maybe let's read Ezra 8 first. Ezra 8, verses 35 and 36. We have here the story of Ezra leaving Babylon. He's bringing back some of the captives. Chapter 7, they have the description that they come. And then when they arrive in, in, in Jerusalem, then they take care of a little bit of business. And then in verses uh, 35 and 36, when they return, it says that they weighed out all the stuff they had brought, and then the children of those who had been carried away from captivity, 835, who had come from captivity, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, 12 male goats as a sin offering. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. And they delivered the king's orders to the king's satraps and the governors in the region. Doesn't sound like it has any data that would help us for such an important event as to how to settle when the 2300 days starts, does it? Just sounds like, what's this extraneous data here? My wife uh, uh, took her studies in narrative theology at, at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School as part of her study on, on, uh, on the beauty and the, and the aesthetics of the Bible. And one thing her professor said is, there's nothing ever wasted in Scripture. If you find a, a text that seems like it's just talking about how many things were offered here and here and here, you better be sure that's going to show up as important someplace. Just wait. And so here's just a list of what they offered. Now, let's go back and look at the decree that Ezra asked for Artaxerxes to make, and he's, he, he did, he made the decree that Ezra wanted him to. So we go to chapter 7, 457, this is going out. 
He's making this decree. We don't know the exact date when he made the decree, but here's what he says. Chapter 7, starting with verse 11. Now, this is the copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra the priest, the scribe, expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes. And then if you know Hebrew, you suddenly get lost because the decree is in Aramaic, a different language. There's three languages in the Bible, Greek, Hebrew, and a few places in Aramaic. And this, is, this whole decree is in Aramaic now. Very similar to Hebrew, but not exactly the same. Fortunately, we have it all translated in English here. Verse 12, Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, perfect peace, and so forth. I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go up with you, and whereas you are to be sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and whereas you are to carry the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Jerusalem who is willing in Jerusalem, and whereas all the silver and gold that you may find in all the province of Babylon, along with the free will offering of the people and the priests, are to be freely offered for the house of the Lord your God. Now, therefore, all the rest was preamble. Wherefore, 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 wherefore. So the first thing, what's the first thing about the decree? Now, therefore, be careful to buy bulls, rams, lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings and, brought and offer them on the altar of the house of your God. So what's the first part of the decree? Buy these certain animals. Buy these certain animals. So point one on our handout, the very first and major stipulation of Artaxerxes' decree was the offering of the sacrifices. Buy and, goes on to say, not only buy, these are given you for the, surf, for the service, and so he says that you are to then offer them in Jerusalem. So the sacrifices are the first part of the decree. Look at point number two. What was the first activity of the returnees when they returned, the first thing they all did, we just read it, verse 35, they offered the sacrifices. Did you notice they're the same animals in the exact same order? Same animals, same order. It seems to me that Ezra had sort of primed the king. You know, here's what we're going to need when we go back. And so please put this in the decree. Make sure we get these animals, get, get these animals bought. Uh, look at point number three now. The offering of the sacrifices already constituted the going forth of the decree. If he said buy these animals and offer them, and now they go back and offer them, then their very offering of them would be to start the decree. It would go into effect when they first started offering. And uh, so the, defect, the, 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 uh, the decree was of Daniel 9.25, that from the going forth of the command to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem. Now look at point number four. The offering of the sacrifices took place during a four-and-a-half-month period in the last half of 457. Now, I'm going to just read a little bit from my manuscript when we get to, to point four here to make this clear. Though no date is given for the offering of these sacrifices, it must have taken place sometime during the four-and-a-half-month period between the fifth month and the fourth day and Kislev 20 in the year 457. Uh, Ezra arrived in Jerusalem from Babylon on the first day of the fifth month. And then it says he three days, he stayed three days, and then on the fourth day they counted the money, and then they purchased the sacrificial animals. And then four and a half years, months later, all Israel was together on the 20th day of the ninth month, and the sacrifices had already been done. So sometime during that four and a half months from when he arrived, in the early fall to when he was, when they all, he gathered them all together in the wintertime, it was done. But we, do we know exactly when? Not yet. We're still snooping. So let's go to number five. 
The sacrifices of Ezra 8.35 are to be correlated with the monthly, yearly, calendrical sacrifices of Numbers 28 and 29. In Numbers 28 and 29, God gives the, the instructions for what sacrifices to offer for each of the festivals. For the daily, for the monthly, every new moon, and for each of the festivals. And they're different. Slightly different. Everyone is slightly different. And just to shorten the time, because I want to also get onto the back page, the number, um, let's see, I'm on number five. Yes, so we read number five. Same order, yeah, they're to be correlated. So the ones in chapter eight, Ezra 8:35, are the same ones that are described in Numbers 28 and 29. Same order. So it's one of the cal calendrical. It have, it, these sacrifices had to be offered on either a monthly or a either Day of Atonement or Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Trumpets. One of those. Uh, number six. The offering of the sacrifices took place during one of the calendrical occasions of the four and a half month period. How do we know that? Let me just read a paragraph here. The sacrifices were offered during one of the calendrical occasions. This is made clear because the four and a half month period had a new moon, a feast of trumpets, a day of atonement, or a feast of tabernacles. One of those four possibilities. Now, which one is the most likely? Number seven. The calendrical sacrifices of one occasion, the Day of Atonement, at the time of the Jubilee, best fits the pattern of the sacrifices offered in Ezra 8.35 and the general context of the passage. Now, I'm skipping a lot from my paper because if I read it, I won't have time for the second half. So I'm just take, taking the high points of the paper and giving you the, giving you the point that the only one of all of these calendrical events that fits all the data from the decree and from Ezra and from Numbers 28 and 29, the only one that fits all of them is Day of Atonement. They have the same number of sacrifices times 12 because it was for the whole 12 tribes. It has a, a series of sevens, seven times seven sacrifices, a multiple, multiple of sevens. And it so happens that the Day of Atonement had a multiple of seven sacrifice that fits this, whereas the other did not have a multiple of sevens. And then finally, just to make this short, because I, I'm just wanting you to get the main, main point of this, is that it has the multiple of sevens for another reason. That my colleague, did you ever take a class, Michael, from uh, Dr. Waterhouse? Doug Waterhouse, you had some classes, okay. He did calculations as to when the Jubilee actually happened in antiquity. What year was the Jubilee year? And he gave very solid evidence to argue that 457 was a Jubilee year. Not any of the other suggested years that have been put forward by scholars 444 or 458. 457, jubilee year. And a jubilee is a 50th year. It's actually 7 times 7 is 49. And then the 50th year is the celebration of that. But the 50th year is the start of the next 7 times 7. So the jubilee runs in cycles of 7 times 7. And so, I got really excited about this when I saw that not only does the sacrificial, the sacrifices that are mentioned in the decree match precisely with Day of Atonement sacrifices, but they also shout out Jubilee. And it so happens that the year when Ezra is coming back is a Jubilee year. And do you think Ezra knew that? He was a scribe. He knew the calculations. And so he planned it. And I'm sure he told the king, we got to go back on this year. It's a jubilee year. And according to Leviticus 25, when the jubilee comes, everyone's supposed to go back to their inheritance. 
And he said to the king, we got to go back to our inheritance because the Jubilee's coming. And so here Ezra comes home on a Jubilee year and he offers the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement of that Jubilee year. Now, when you look at all the details, and I saw your eyes glazing over as I started going into the details, and I figured, no, I gotta back off from the details and give you the big picture, because it becomes exciting to see that right at the very beginning of the 2300 days, it started on a day of atonement. And right at the end, it starts on a day of atonement. And I'll give you one more piece of the big picture. The Day of Atonement moves through every year. It comes on a slightly different date because they're on a lunar cycle. And they have to link this with the solar cycle. And so you got basically three positions of, of when the festivals come, either an early position or a middle position or a late position. In 457, it came on a late position, end of October. In 1844, it came on a late position, end of October. So God's timing was amazing. Not only the right year, not only the right event, but the right cycle of the right event. Isn't that amazing? God's timing is perfect on this. Uh, let, let's share a little bit now. I actually didn't give that part of the paper in Rome because I, I have enough paper for two hours and I only had 20 minutes in Rome. So I gave a little taste of that one. But now turn to the other side. And here again, I will give a taste and then I'll let uh, Gerard give, fill in the gaps that I, didn't, that I didn't cover accurately or, I mean, sufficiently. Did you get the summary of what I said? Here's my conclusion. I conclude in light of the evidence from these passages that the going forth of the war word to restore and build Jerusalem certainly went forth, went into effect in the fall of 457 BC and very probably on the Day of Atonement of that year. So let's go to the, to the, to the second issue now. When was Day of Atonement? In 1844. Was it October 22, or were the rabbis right when they claimed it was eight, uh, September 23? Uh, I would like to share some evidence that's excited me. I wish I could tell you I had the silver bullet. We don't have the silver bullet yet. Because the silver bullet would be if we actually had the... the agricultural calendar of the Karaites in 1844 that showed unequivocally that they were adding an extra month that year and that it put it in the late position. We do not have a traveler that records in 1844. But we got travelers, Kalman, in 1840. We found, I found in the, in the library in, in uh, Harvard University, a traveler of 1843. And I said, Lord, why didn't you just let someone go through in 1844 so that he could tell us for sure that the Jews, the rabbis, and the, the Karaites were celebrating at a different time, we'd have the silver bullet. But I've got it pretty close to the silver bullet, okay? And, and maybe with my bronze bullet and Sheik's and, uh, bronze bullet, it'll be a silver bullet when they're both combined. We, we'll hope so. So here we go. Uh, Day of Atonement typology. We've already talked about that. If the language of Daniel 8.14 is Day of Atonement, then it should be fulfilled on a Day of Atonement. Right? Just like Jesus' death is a Passover language, and he died on Passover. And when the, the Holy Spirit was poured out, it was poured out at Pentecost, and it came on a Pentecost, exactly on a Pentecost. And so it should be the same for Day of Atonement. Now, the difficulty is we have the rabbinic calculation 
versus the biblical reckoning. According to the rabbinic calculation, which is not based upon the biblical reckoning, it's based upon mathematical formulas that were worked out so you could figure out when to celebrate even though you weren't in Jerusalem and could watch the barley harvest. And so they made these mathematical formulas when they were in Babylon in captivity. And those are different than the biblical method. And according to the rabbinic method of calculating, it was September 23. But I'd like to suggest, according to the Karaite method, it was not September 23, it was October 22. Let's see how we can, how we can discover that. And uh, so let me see if I can break this down. It is somewhat complicated, right, Michael, all of these calculation stuff? But you have, you have there in front of you, and I'm going to describe this number two, rabbinic calculation versus biblical reckoning. The ancient Jewish calendar utilized a combination of lunar and solar calculations, a lunar-solar year. The months were regulated by sighting of the new moon each month, but 12 lunar months, and you know how long, you know how long a lunar month is, 29.53059 days. Got that? is nearly 11 days shorter, actually 10.8752 days, than the solar day, which is 365.242 days. Of course, you do all that calculation, right, when you're going through the calendar every year? Aren't you glad it's all been done for us, so we don't have to do that. But in biblical times, in order to keep these two calendars together, the lunar and the solar, they had to have some way of, of, of correlating them because they were about 10 days off, 10 or 11 days off every year, about a third of a month. The, the low solar, low solar calendar was a third of the month off from the lunar calendar. So what they did was they added an extra month. We call it an intercalated month, intercalation, added in between. A leap month, if you please, every three years, about every three years, actually about every seven times out of every 19 years. So according to the Bible, how are you supposed to figure when to add that leap month in order to bring the solar calendar into harmony with the lunar calendar? What you did, what they did, was they went out and they looked at the harvest. And the thing that had to happen was at Passover time, you had to wave this wave sheaf of barley, and it had to be ripe barley. And so when it came time for Passover, the barley had to be ripe. So the rabbis would go back several weeks before Passover and go out and look at the barley harvest. And they were really good at this. And when the barley was abib, that's the Hebrew word for their month of the year, was their first month was called the month of abib because the barley came into abib which meant that it started turning from green to yellow, started getting ripe, started getting brittle enough so that you could actually parch the grain and eat it. And you knew, if you were good enough at it, you knew that in three weeks it would be ripe enough to wave a wave sheaf. If it weren't ripe enough, then the priest would go out and announce, we have to add another month. So that year you would have two 12th months. So it was a 13 months long instead of 12, which means then the next year would be delayed by a month, right? You get that? You get the, it, that? I mean, it, would, it seems like, man, that would be really hard for us. Well, we add a, every four years, we add an extra day to February. It doesn't bother us all that much. They just added an extra month, five, seven times out of every 19 years. And so the whole issue is when, in 1844, according to the Bible record, the Bible way of figuring it, should they have added that extra month or should they have not? Was the barley going to be ripe or was it not going to be ripe? So now um, our pioneers, are you going to get into the economical calendar of Palestine? You'll be talking about that? because they found this document that described the actual 
weather conditions for Palestine in that period of time in, 1840, in the 1840s. In the, and, the, in, in, and in Palestine, the economic calendar of Palestine wrote uh, to be, I'll just quote it here, um, Johann Bulle's economic calendar of Palestine was based upon the empirical research of travelers which makes very clear that although the barley is often ripe in Jericho by the end of March, it is not ripe in Jerusalem or elsewhere in Palestine until some two weeks later. That means if you ever find the year starting in March instead of April, you're too early. You're not going to have barley. So based upon that, and then based upon the Karaites, are you going to say a lot about the Karaites? You're going to tell who they are and what they do? Because, it, you know, my time is getting short, and I'd love to give you an hour to do that. But should I just say a little bit about the Karaites? I don't want to repeat what you're going to do. Tell me. Go? Okay. All right. Well, the Karaite Jews were an ancient sect of Judaism originating in the 9th century A.D., and actually, in the Middle Ages, 40% of Jews were Karaites. And Karaite means people of the scriptures. Sound like what Adventists want to be? And the Karaites were a group of Jews that believed in sola scriptura, the Bible and the Bible only, no tradition. So the rabbis had all these traditions as to when to count this and when to do that. They say, away with that. We're going to go with the biblical record of when to count the barley, when to count the harvest. And so, uh, unfortunately, this is, I just learned this in research, that by 1844, almost everyone, every Karite, had abandoned the biblical way of calculating this because they weren't in Jerusalem. They didn't have people in Jerusalem to be able to do it. And so they went. And so if, when you go to the Karaites today in Jerusalem and you ask them, tell me about this, what did you, how, did, how did you work the calendar back in 1844? They'll show you a document from the chief rabbinate of the Karaite church in Egypt in 1844 that says, we keep the feasts just like the rabbis do. And they will try to tell you, the Karaites in Jerusalem will try to tell you that in 1844, everyone was keeping them the same. What they never read was the travelers. We've got travelers reports, four or five travelers who went through Jerusalem at this time, lived in Jerusalem, and they reported the Karaites are keeping the time for starting the year one month differently than are the rabbis. There's now a book that's been published on the history of the Karaites, and there were at least seven families, maybe more, of Karaites in Jerusalem at this time. And what's, what what amazed me was they were there just for the right time so that our pioneers could learn from the travelers about the right time to keep the Passover and hence the Day of Atonement, which would be one month later. And what shocked me was that by 1860, 15 years later, there were no Karaites left. Crimea War came, and they were all disappeared. So for that narrow point of time, when Adventists needed to have a testimony for the biblical way of calculating when does Day of Atonement start, we had it. And so when the detractors, like Desmond Ford, say, those silly Adventist pioneers... They were so naive that they went to this little sect to find out about the truth. Guess who the naive ones were? I think if I had been a uh, I, 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 I would think if someone was going to ask me 
and I hadn't done all the study on the Karaites. Well, when does the when does the Day of Atonement start? I would go to a go to the to the rabbinic calendar. But our pioneers, they didn't have Greek and Hebrew and sophisticated tools, but they had something better. They had the Berean spirit and the Holy Spirit of God leading them, leading them into truth, leading them to find the Karaite group, leading them to find these testimonies of the Karaite travelers that points out the right time that it's to happen. I praise God for his providence. Now we have a second line of evidence that time will not permit me to give here in detail, but it's on your chart. And, that, and this is William Shea's arguments. William Shea is a great mathematician, and he did some uh, direct mathematical computation. You can see point number six there, where he showed this pattern of the late position, the intermediate position, or the early position for when uh, the months would start. And he showed how in 1459 it was the late, and then in 458 it was the intermediate, 457 it was the early, and then 456 back to the late. And so he, he then did the calculation forward to 1844. And he um, um, found out if it, would, if it would come out even, then it would be the same for 1844. Well, he found out it came out one off, one position different. And uh, because it was one position different, then he also saw that it was... Uh, I'm summarizing seven pages of my paper, so I'm trying to just say it in layman's terms here. But he, he, also, he, he also saw that it was um, um, that the calculations of the Day of Atonement by the rabbis were exactly every seven out of every 19 years, it came back to the same cycle. So if you add seven times into 19, it comes back to the same cycle. But actually, if you look at those 0 .005, you know, the, if you look at the full data, there's a slippage in the calendar because it's not exactly seven times out of every 19. It slips by a little bit every year. And between Jesus' day and the time of 1844, it slipped by 11 days. It slipped by one, one position of the, of the calendar. If it slipped by one, and the date then was an, a late date, then it would be exactly on, and ex without any in-between, and it would come out exactly on the right time. So Shea was on the right track, and if you just add that slippage of the 11 days, you come out exact with it being a, a late, October 457 and a late October in 1844. So his, his is a, a, another way of showing that this is indeed an accurate presentation. So I've got to end with one more, uh, one more piece of evidence which is cool to me. I love the book of Ezekiel. And the book of Ezekiel is all about Day of Atonement. The whole book of Ezekiel, the first 11 chapters are God coming in an investigative judgment into the Holy of Holies in the Jerusalem temple. And then he leaves. And then the last nine chapters, 40 to 48, he's coming back to restore, to cleanse the sanctuary. And in that last vision, of Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 1, he actually gives the date. Ezekiel gives dates for all the times. Everything he writes, he gives a date for it. And they're very significant, those dates, but the last one's the most significant. Because as he dates his last vision, the vision of a cleansed sanctuary, Day of Atonement, he says it took place on Rosh Hashanah. You ever heard of Rosh Hashanah before? Jewish New Year. Rosh means head. Hashanah means the year, head of the year. The year started on the, in the seventh month in the Jewish year. The civil year started in the seventh month. And he says, 
I was given this vision on Rosh Hashanah, the 10th day of the month. Now, you Bible students, if you have the seventh month and the 10th day of the seventh month, what day are you at? Day of Atonement, that's right. Day of Atonement was the 10th day of the seventh month. And so Ezekiel is given this vision of a cleansed sanctuary that was a type of the heavenly cleansing. He was given it on Day of Atonement. That was exciting enough for me. Day of Atonement hardly ever comes on the same day. Once in a blue moon, it comes out on the same calendar date because of this lunisolar situation. So imagine my surprise when I went to Walter Zimmerli's commentary, Michael, in German, translated into English, fortunately now, uh, and looked up, he did the calculations for what day this was in our time of dating. Ezekiel was given his Day of Atonement vision on October 22. Ezekiel is the most complete Old Testament type of the Day of Atonement. And here, as he's giving this typological pre-representation of the Day of Atonement, he actually aligns it so it will come exact on October 22. I got shivers down my spine when I saw that. God and his precision in his timing to make this typology fit perfectly. So I conclude. I'll just read the conclusion here. The beginning and ending dates of the 2300-day prophecy of Daniel 8.14 are solid and secure with regard to the year 457 and A.D. 1844. We also may be more precise in regard to the exact dates, probably beginning on a Day of Atonement in 457 B.C., October 30, start of the Jubilee, and certainly ending on the Day of Atonement in 1844, which that year, according to the biblical reckoning, almost certainly fell on October 22, not September 23. Minor points? I don't think anything is a minor point when it has to do with when God is starting that great new phase of judgment in heaven. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.